what a blessing. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of, of children's choirs over the years, ministry and so forth. Um, our kids put it out there, I'm just saying. They do a good job. Very proud of y'all. Um, good job, Lady Morgan. Uh, leading and Morgan. Good, you did a good job. Appreciate that very much. All right, we are in continuing in First Corinthians, and we come to chapter fifteen uh, today. And um, Chandler, uh, Chandler, chapter fifteen um, is it, kind of interesting because it doesn't follow any of the other patterns that Paul has pursued in um, in in the letter thus far. Uh, if you remember, we've talked about how. The church in Corinth was a was a very troubled church, struggling with a lot of different issues, and a great uh, amount of the letter seems to be trying to address those, trying to uh, correct misconceptions, and, and in fact, a lot of them, uh, a lot of the chapters arise out of questions that the church at Corinth has asked. They've asked Paul to give his position, to give uh, his authoritative position on the issues that they're dealing with, that they're struggling with. And so he, he usually has some sort of introduction to the problem, some sort of um, segue into what he's going to say and how he's going to present it and how he's going to argue it. But when you come to chapter 15, there's none of that. There, there's no indications that he's necessarily dealing with a particular problem in the church at Corinth. Um, now, he probably is, and, and he probably is because the, the subject of the chapter is the issue of resurrection. And, and that was a, a subject, that was a matter that was of some um, degree of difficulty for Greeks. Okay. Um, Plato, most of us have heard of the, the great philosopher Plato. Um, he, he really shaped a lot of Greek thought. Um, and, and his view, his, the, the heart of his philosophy was grounded on the idea that that what we see and what we experience here on earth is just a, it's just a shadow of the ideal, the reality that's out there someplace. And because of that, because of this philosophy and how it became so pervasive in, in Greek thought and Greek uh, expectations, Greek understandings about who we are and how we're made and so forth, um, they, they developed a perception, by and large, that said that this life, what we see and what we experience is, is just temporal, and there is a spiritual aspect to life and to reality that's eternal. Okay. And so their kind of perception of how you dealt with that was that we longed for that time when we left the physical. That was the goal, and that, that's, that's Platonic thought. And a lot of that is found in expression in, in certain strands and certain branches of Christianity, but that's not Christian doctrine. That's not Christian belief. Christian belief about who we are is, is not that we someday will escape this body and, and go well someplace else and that, that that's the goal. Christian belief, Christian doctrine is grounded in the idea of resurrection, that God's going to bring this body back. It's going to be different. It's going to be changed in some ways, but it's going to be this body. Okay, and that that's fundamental to our belief system. That's fundamental to who we are. It's grounded in, as we'll see as we go through this chapter, Christ's resurrection. 
And so that was, that was a struggle that the Greeks had. So we can assume that that was a struggle that the church at Corinth had. And so in some ways, Paul is likely addressing that, but he doesn't follow his normal formula. And, and I think the reason he doesn't have that kind of intro, he doesn't have that kind of, you have asked, or some of you are saying this, or, or that sort of thing that you, you've commonly seen throughout Corinth, is because he wants them to understand that as he's concluding his letter here, as he's wrapping it up, He's addressing the heart of all the other issues. Everything else he said culminates in this doctrine, culminates in this position. And we'll see how that plays out here as we, as we go through the chapter. He begins in verses 1 and 2 by saying, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain or believed for nothing. And, and so he starts with this reality that the resurrection is the gospel. Okay, this is where he's going to go throughout the, the remainder of this chapter. It's, a, it's, it's how he's wanting to sum up his view here. And, and he says, it's my hope. It's my prayer that you're holding on to this truth. Because again, as he knows, he knows it's, it's a struggle for them. It, it, it goes against their whole worldview, their whole perspective of how life functions and what's, what's important and what's significant and where this is all heading. It goes beyond all that. And, and so he says, man, it's my prayer. It's my desire that, that you are holding on to. You're believing the gospel that I proclaimed. And the heart of that gospel is the resurrection. Now, when I say the term resurrection, I really have kind of two resurrections in mind. Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. Okay, And, and Paul views them as, as intertwined. They're connected so that we don't say resurrections, plural. We say the rex, resurrection because what? Jesus is the firstborn of all who will be resurrected. So his resurrection, even though it's separated by, by at this point, at least 2,000 years from our resurrection, okay, Paul would see them as so intertwined that it's just the resurrection. What happened to Christ is going to happen to us. And what happened to Christ makes it possible for what's going to happen to us. That's the good news. The good news is that though we are dead in our sin. Though we are separated from Christ, separated from God, separated from who we were made to be. Remember, our, 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 the whole theme of Corinthians is becoming who you are, becoming who God has made you. And even though we're separated from that and we're, we're divorced from that, Christ has made a way for us to find that, for us to discover that, for us to live in that. And the way he has done that is through the resurrection. And so Paul's going to spend some time kind of outlining this doctrine and, and outlining some truths that, that really affect us and how we operate. And in verses 3 through 8, he's going to give us some essential truths of Jesus' resurrection. He says, For I passed on to you as most important, notice that, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to the one born at the wrong time. He also appeared to me. Paul here says, this is the most important. All the other things we've discussed in this book, all the other disagreements, all the other struggles that are going on there in Corinth, all the other struggles that we have, maybe theologically, how does this all work? How does this all fit together? How do, how do we understand God? How do we understand our relationship to him? How, how, where do we draw the line between liberty and, and license, you know, uh, being free, but also uh, being representative of who Christ is? How, all those questions that we've asked and we dealt with as we've gone through Corinthians here. He says, of all those, this is the most important. This is the one on which all of them hang. This is the one on which all of them are centered. And so he gives us some of these essential truths, these most important truths. And the first thing he says here is what? That, that Jesus really died. He really died. There's a, there's a theory about the resurrection out there. Um, it's called the swoon theory. And the swoon theory is essentially a, a theory that explains the resurrection by saying, suggesting that Jesus didn't really die that the Christians were just mistaken. That Jesus there on the cross, he passed out. And that once he was placed in the cold, damp tomb, that caused him to come out of his swoon, out of his being passed out. And that's how he was able to, quote, raise from the dead. Paul here says, no, Jesus really did die. And if you go back to the Gospels, there really cannot, can be no mistaking this truth. Jesus died. Okay, He wasn't killed by a mob. He wasn't killed by amateurs. He was killed by Roman soldiers who knew death, who saw death on a daily basis, who understood the difference between somebody who had passed out, and someone who had died. And just in case we're, we're not really uh, clear on that, and just in case we don't, that really doesn't sink in, we, we get the description from Luke that a soldier, wanting to make sure that he was dead, wanting to make sure that he hadn't just passed out on the cross from the conditions, from the situation and everything that was going on, shoved that spear into his side. And he would have known exactly where to place that sphere. Exactly where it needed to go to pierce the heart. And Luke, being the physician, gives us the, the most medical descriptive reality of the death here. It says that both water and blood flowed. Which suggests the, 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 the piercing of the cardiac sac. You don't just pass out from that die from that. And so Jesus really did die. The second truth he says is that Jesus was buried. Now, that one we, we, we may look at and we say, well, that's not such a big deal. Why is that? Why would you classify that as essential? 
it's essential from the perspective of Judaism uh, for two reasons. Number one, it is a marker of finality. It's done. This person's dead. But it's also, secondly, it's an expression of obedience to the law. Now, I want, I want you to think about that. Because one of, one of our truths, one of the things that we've acknowledged over the years is that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He is. He was sinless. And, and what's important about that is that some of his sinlessness in the early years was dependent upon his parents. Okay, Circumcised, the eighth day, all of that. That was all part of the law. He was following the law. He kept the law even then through the work of his parents and through his own, obviously, perfection. But then even after death, he keeps the law by being buried according to the Old Testament custom, the Old Testament expectations that this is how a body is properly treated, a body is properly handled. From birth to death, Jesus perfectly fulfilled all of God's will and God's design. And so Paul notes that here. He, he communicates that here because he, he's wanting his readers, he's wanting us to understand the, just the completeness of Jesus' obedience. Then Paul says, thirdly, Jesus experienced resurrection. Verses 5 through 8, he, he talks about the appearances that Jesus had to Peter, to the apostles, to others. And it's here that we see the relationship of faith to historical evidence. And we've talked about this before, how important a, a distinction this is for Christianity from all the other religious experiences out there. All the other religious experiences out there, they do what? They give you a, a, a set of precepts, of truths, or they give you a list of rules, do this, do that. That's not Christianity. Yes, there are some precepts, and yes, there are some rules, but that's not the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is what? It's the story. It's the story. God telling us the story of his interaction with us. It's not just God saying, I'm up here, I'm doing fine, y'all are down there, here's some rules, live by them. It's God interacting. It's God engaging. That's that's why the miracle stories of the Old and New Testament are, are so important. They, they reveal to us, they relate to us, that our God is not separate from us in the sense of disinterested, disconnected. He is separate than us in that he's transcendent. He's above it all. He's more powerful. He's not constrained by the things we are, but he is still very much connected. At the end of Exodus chapter 2, you have Israel enslaved. And what's it say there? God heard, God saw, God remembered, God knew their suffering. Four verbs there that very clearly communicate God's connection with the hurting of Israel there in slavery. You move into the New Testament, you, you see God 
interacting, you see Jesus weeping, caring, feeding, moved with compassion. How many times do we, we read that sentence in the Gospels? Jesus was, was moved with compassion. That's our God. That's the God we serve. That's the God that we experience. And so those are all things that are that are what? They're, they're real. They're, they're touchable. They're experienceable. Even if we were not there to experience them, we connect with them still. The stories we read become our story too. Something that we encounter. And so when Paul talks about the resurrection, he doesn't just say, and then one day he came back from the dead. Because remember, in, in his environment, there would have been a tendency to say, well, the spirit was kind of there. The spirit was visible. But his body, not so important. So he gives us what? He gives us six post-resurrection appearances here in the narrative. And what's he doing? He's inviting his readers, check it out. You don't believe me? Check it out. He says, Jesus appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters, many of whom are still alive. If my testimony's not good enough for you, go ask them. Go talk to them. Blaise Pascal said, faith certainly tells us what the senses do not but not the contrary of what they see. It is above, not against them. I'm going to repeat that. This is important. Faith certainly tells us what the senses do not. In other words, our faith, what? It's the evidence of things not seen. It's things that it's beyond what our senses can understand. But it's not contrary to our senses. It's not at war with our senses or with our knowledge or with our reason or with our logic. It's not opposed to those things. It's above those things, not against them. That's why the, the story, that's why the Bible is, is so much about things that were really experienced, things that were really seen, things that were, were really encountered. And when you think of the evidence for the resurrection, there really is a lot of truths there that that we can hold on to from the precautions taken, the Roman soldiers, the, the Roman seal, the large stone, to the fact that our first witnesses are women. And again, in their culture, women were not considered reliable witnesses. So if you're going to make something up, if you're going to create some story that, that you want people to believe, you're not going to use women as the objects of your story. The only reason you would use women as the object of your story is if women really did see it and women really were the, testi the testimony that you're following. The multiple witnesses that, that Paul lists here, the hostile witnesses that you find in the Gospels and elsewhere, people who are against the church and against its truth and yet readily admit the resurrection took place. We got to hide it. We can't let this get out. And then the church itself. 
the fact that we are here today, the fact that there are churches, there are believers all over the planet growing from a group of 11 men, several women, to the millions we find today, especially in light of the fact that those 11 men, after Christ's death, were where? They were hiding, weren't they? They're locked up in a room. We don't want them to get us the way they got him. Text says when Jesus died, they all scattered. They were, they were afraid. They were frightened. They were terrified of what would happen and the consequences of what they would face because they had followed this one who was now dead. And they had seen all these insurrectionists over the years, these, these false messiahs who had risen up and said, we can overthrow Rome, we can overthrow Rome. And, and then Rome responds and says, no, you can't, and wipes them all out. They had seen that repeatedly. Within just a few years prior, we have records of Pontius Pilate himself dealing with some insurrectionists, wiping them out. And so they're afraid. What happens when Rome comes after us too? And yet, just a couple months later, Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, Peter standing up in the temple courtyard, the most public place you could be in Jerusalem, on one of the most public days you could be there. People from all over the world had traveled to celebrate, to, to hold Pentecost, the Feast of Week, to, to be a part of that. And he's standing up in full boldness, declaring Christ has risen from the grave. How do you go from somebody who's denying your very relationship with Jesus, hiding in an upper room so that you're not attacked or taken yourself, to standing in the most public place you can and declaring your fellowship with Jesus? The only reason he would be there is if Jesus actually had risen from the grave. That's the only source of that kind of courage. That's the only source of that kind of response. And the church exists today as one of the strongest pieces of evidence of the resurrection. Now from these evidences and these truths about the resurrection, Paul then moves into why the doctrine of the resurrection And he gives us both, both positive and negative, that is positive evidence, negative evidence of why it's important. Beginning in verse 12, we read, Now Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. How can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our pro proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Those, then, who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits 
of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. Just as all in Adam die, so also all in Christ will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then though then comes the end. When the hands when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, and he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. So what does what does Paul have to say here about the resurrection? He says the doctrine of the resurrection matters. First of all, because if it didn't happen, several things are true. If there is no resurrection, if Christ's resurrection didn't happen, several things are true. Number one, our preaching is worthless. I'm just up here spouting a bunch of words that ultimately mean nothing, make no difference. Maybe they'll give you a little hope. Maybe they'll give you a little encouragement. Maybe they'll give you a little this or that. But really, when it all comes down to it, my preaching, any Christian preaching, is worthless if Christ didn't rise from the grave. Because it leads nowhere. It's just another empty philosophy. Secondly, our faith is worthless. You can say you believe in Jesus. But as we said, faith is not distinguished from, separated from reality. It is intertwined with it. And so if your faith is in something that didn't actually happen, your faith itself is worthless. It doesn't matter. You are delusional. Third, the apostles were false witnesses. Now again, in in the Jewish context, that's a big charge because if you're a false witness, then it is responsibility of all of Judaism, everybody else, to stone you to death. And so he says, if it didn't happen, I myself, I'm a false witness. Get those stones ready. If it didn't happen, we're still in our sins. You are without hope. You are without salvation. Now this is important because a lot of times in Christianity today, We want to talk about how it's his death that cleansed us. And yes, his death is what brings in the cleansing, so to speak. But that cleansing is what? It's only verified as actually having happened if Christ also rose from the grave. Think of it this way. When Jesus was there preaching in and you remember the story where he's, he's inside the house and it's too crowded? And so the friends of the paralytic man, they, they tear off the roof. <laughs> that would have freaked me out if I'm, the, if I'm the owner of that house. But nonetheless, okay, they tear off the, the roof and they lower the man down. And, and Jesus is looking at him and, and he sees the Pharisees standing there and they're kind of looking around and he says, he says, watch, I'll show them. Your sins are forgiven. Everybody's like, what? How can he say such a thing? How can he proclaim such a thing? He goes, let me ask you, is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And the obvious answer is sins are forgiven because there's no immediately visible reality there that can hold a person accountable. 
you say rise up and walk, then what? That either person does it or doesn't. Either you're true or you're not. So he says, so you may know that I have the power to forgive sins, rise up and walk. And I think that's a precursor to the resurrection. When he died on the cross, why does his, why does the resurrection, or why does the, how do we know, I'll get out here in a minute, how do we know that his death on the cross actually forgave our sins? How do we know that it happened? How is it, how is it more than just a statement of ours? How is, it, how is it more than just wishful thinking? So that you may know that I forgave sins and died on the cross, I'm going to raise from the grave. Here I am. Confirmation that I accomplished what I said I would when I went to the cross. And so the resurrection is, is, is essential to the truth that we have been forgiven. If Christ didn't rise from the grave, death is victorious. It has the final say. It's where it all is headed. And if Christ didn't rise from the grave, then Christians are to be pitied. Because we are a bunch of fools. especially when you pick up with the persecution that begins in the New Testament and continues, especially for the next three centuries within their experience. People being burned at the stake. People being fed to wild animals. People being persecuted and, and ostracized and pushed to decide if Christ did not rise from the grave, we're idiots for going through all. But there's a positive side to this too. The resurrection matters since it has happened. Number one, we can expect to rise again. If Jesus has risen from the grave, guess what? We are going to one day as well. And it won't be like Lazarus' resuscitation where he got back up for a time and then few years later, he died again. It'll be eternal. It'll be magnificent. It'll be wonderful. We also know what our, our resurrection will be like. What was Jesus like after the resurrection? He was known by who he was. There was continuity with his pre-resurrection body. They could recognize him. The scars were still evident. He still ate. He spoke. He was touchable. He wasn't some phantom or some ghost. And you might ask, well, why didn't they recognize him? The simple answer there is they weren't expecting him. I've shared before about visiting my, my brother's church unexpectedly one Sunday. He didn't expect to see me there. I sat right in front of him. He looked at me through his whole sermon. But about three-fourths of the way, he's like, that's my brother. Been here the whole time. He wasn't expecting, so he didn't recognize me. He didn't see me. But they knew it was Jesus. This was the one they had sat with and ate with and cried with and learned from. 
three years. But the body was also different in some ways. It was not limited to time and space. It was, it was changed. And as I was preparing this message, that that this week in particular, that, that truth kind of just settled in, I think, in ways that it hasn't before. My son in the hospital dealing with things that are really hard to comprehend. Some of the things he's seen and experiencing and all those, those sorts of things. When I think about the resurrection, I think sometimes we have this, this image that it's just, okay, one day we'll be new again. We'll be, it'll be out there. But it's not that God is going to give us a whole new body that's totally different than this one, totally distinct from this one. He's going to take this body and change it. He's going to take... My son's broken body. And his distorted mind. He's going to make it new. And whole. And my boy who can barely walk sometimes going to leap. There's power in the resurrection. We know it because Christ has already gone ahead of us in experiencing it. And the third, we can expect to see the kingdom come and sin and death ended. He's already won the battle. It's not an if to win. Notice what the first sentence, or the first group, it was if it didn't happen. With this group, it's since it did happen. And the same thing's true of his return. It's not if it's going to happen. It's since it's going to happen. This is what we can expect. And he Wright put it this way. He says, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. The resurrection changes our now. It tells us that this body does matter. This affects our evangelism. We're not just 
quote, soul winners. We are disciple makers. We're interested in the whole person. Continuing on with Nietzsche, writing in a different location, says, the work of salvation in its full sense is about the whole human beings, not merely souls, about the present, not simply the future, and about what God does through us, not merely what God does in and for us. Resurrection is what drives that. Who we are matters. We, are, we minister to the whole person, to their whole need. Secondly, it changes our now because we have hope. We are not like those without hope. When we deal with lost people, or with people who have, who have passed on, rather, when, when we deal with, with those loved ones who are no longer with us, we mourn, but we don't mourn like those who have no hope. And then third, we have power and freedom. Verses 50 through 56. Paul talks about the victory. About the power that we have. That we are moving beyond the corruptibleness of this reality to something bigger. And Christ's resurrection proclaims that. It tells us that what we're experiencing now is headed towards something even greater. And it makes the now matter all that much more. C.S. Lewis said, The resurrection was not a, a last-minute act designed to rescue the hero from some unexpected course of events that got out of God's control. It was his plan, his purpose, his power. God was not surprised on that Good Friday when Christ died. It was part of God's plan, but it didn't stop there. God's plan continued with the resurrection. And in your life, God is not surprised by the things you encounter, by the hurts that you deal with. It's for His glory, for His purposes, and He will guide you through that in His power. So where does that leave us? If the whole person matters, if, if we have hope, if, if we have power and freedom in Christ, where does that leave us? It leaves us with a world that needs to know that Christ is risen. It leaves us with a world that needs to understand this is all headed someplace, someplace important, someplace significant. It leaves us with a world that we need to reach out to. Henry Knox Sherrill says, the joyful news that he has risen does not change the contemporary world. He's been around for, he's been risen for 2,000 years, and there are a lot of things that still are very much the same. Sin seems to be victorious. Life goes on in many ways, in a, in a depressing way, in a hurtful way, in a heartache way. The resurrection gives us the power to uh, affect it, but it doesn't do it just by itself. God has called us to something. He goes on, still before us lie work, discipline, sacrifice, 
but the fact that Easter gives us spiritual power to do the work, accept the discipline, and make the sacrifice. How are you able to live the life God has called you to? How are you able to make disciples? How are you able to, to sacrifice, to live a life that's different, to live a life of conviction and compassion, to live a life that seeks truth but expresses that truth in love? How are we able to find that balance? to walk with freedom and yet also represent Christ. All the things that we've seen throughout the book of Corinthians, it's by the power of the resurrection. It's by living in that strength. It's by living in that knowledge and understanding. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come today. And God, I confess... that I have not lived in the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, the way you have called me to. God, I confess my failure to acknowledge and truly live in what you have done through the resurrection of your son. God, I ask this morning that you grant me the insight, the perspective, the courage to live in that power, to reach out to my neighbors, to minister to the hurting, to share my faith with the lost. God, I pray that for my brothers and sisters here as well. And I pray that you speak to each heart here. God, if there's someone here who's never surrendered to the power of the resurrection, never experienced the change, the transformation that it can bring to a life right now, that you would draw them in your power and they would respond in faith. I pray for my brothers and sisters who have experienced that power, who have experienced that transformation. Lord, is there something you're laying on their heart? some corrective, some direction, some purpose that they've been ignoring, they would surrender to that this morning and be obedient to your leadership. God, use this time to direct our hearts and minds to your purpose and plan. In Christ's name.